Maybe you heard the story about the snail that was crossing the road and got run over by a turtle. <laughs> well, the snail went to the emergency room and the doctor said, what happened? And the snail said, I don't know, it happened so fast. <laughs> it's Wednesday night and the revival's over. It happened so fast. I feel like I just got here. I'm just getting warmed up, but thank you for letting me come. I'll get on the plane in the morning and go back. I'm very mindful tonight. Uh, little Caleb, several of you know, was born nine days ago uh, to our daughter Elizabeth, grandson number 11. He's in heart surgery as we speak right now for about eight hours. So I'm, my mind is wandering, as you can understand. But I'll be back tomorrow. Check on him. So a fellow moved to Brazil. His father was back on a farm in the hills of Kentucky, <clears throat> an uneducated gentleman in the hills of Kentucky. And he wanted to send his dad a nice present. <clears throat> and so he bought him a very expensive talking parrot. Mailed the parrot back to his dad on the farm. <clears throat> Kept waiting to hear from his dad on what he thought about the present. Never heard anything. Finally, he called his dad and said, Dad, did you get the bird? Dad said, yep. Well, did you like the bird? Dad said, it was delicious. <laughs> the man said, Dad, you ate the bird? That was an expensive talking parrot. He could speak two languages. The dad said, well, he should have said something. <laughs> God has given us a very expensive gift in human sexuality. And we don't know what to do with it. I mean, other than the gift of salvation... I've been trying to think today. Is there anything more amazing that God has done in creation than in creating little boys and little girls, masculinity and femininity? And God, I think, leans over heaven sometimes and says, Did you get my gift? Did you get my gift? Yep. But Lord, we've made a mess of it. We don't know what to do with what you've given us. We're going to go there tonight. I don't, I've tried to talk the Lord all day out of preaching this sermon. I don't enjoy it, and you don't enjoy listening to it, I don't think. But I'm more afraid not to talk about it than to talk about it. It is the elephant in the room. If we went around the room, I suspect there's not a family here in this good evangelical church of Bible-believing people who somewhere in your family there's trouble going on, confusion, moral issues that maybe even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you could never have even 
imagined. I was a psychology major in college long ago in a universe far, far away. When I was a major in psychology, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, published by the American Psychiatric Association, homosexual behavior was listed as a mental disorder. Not by the Southern Baptist Convention, by the American Psychiatric Association. That's one lifetime until 1973 homosexual behavior was considered a mental disorder, something that needed to be cured. Today, four decades later, I'm the one who's mentally deranged <laughs> to even raise an eyebrow that maybe there's a problem with same-sex behaviors. And I scratch my head and say, how did this happen? Let me just tell you, I don't blame Hollywood for what has happened. I don't blame politics for what has happened. I don't blame higher education for what has happened. Can I be bold? I blame the church, the pulpits of America for what has happened. Um, if I'm hard on the church, it's because I love the church. If I'm hard on pastors, it's because I am one. So let's go there. You may not struggle with human sexuality issues, but probably the person sitting next to you has some issues, so just elbow them and say, be sure to pay attention tonight, okay? I preached on human sexuality a few years ago in Lakeland, Florida at a retirement community. There must have been 500 octogenarians, listen to me, I mean uh, 80-year-olds. And I preached this sermon, actually, on human sexuality. And after the sermon, one of the next day, the guy in the sound booth said, man, we sold a lot of tapes last night. We haven't sold that. And he said, all of them said they were getting the tapes for their grandchildren, but I didn't believe them. <laughs> this is the elephant in the room. So let's go there. And if we don't talk about it in church, where are we going to talk about it? And if our children aren't introduced to these issues in church, let me guarantee you, they will be introduced to these issues at school, on the Internet, on social media. So why am I talking about this? I'm so glad you asked because I feel like I'm putting a bullseye on when I take on this. First reason I'm talking about it is because this is where the battle is raging in our culture. And if you're not aware, aware of this, wake up and smell the coffee. This is where the battle is raging. The Supreme Court, the church, I think the last time I checked, there are 60, 64 different pronouns being used now to define gender options. This is where the battle is raging, and for the church not to go there, to, for the church to remain silent, is pastoral malpractice of the worst kind. You're really silent tonight. You're really listening. Thank you.
Edmund Burke famously said, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Martin Luther, uh, maybe, thank you for singing A Mighty Fortress. If there ever was a culture warrior, Martin Luther, oh my goodness, he took on the, the whole establishment. Listen to what Martin Luther said 500 years ago. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God's truth, except precisely that little point which the world, the devil, are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. That's a marvelous quote. There's a second reason I have to go there. We have to go there. Because sexuality is directly linked to holiness. Study your Bible. Every time almost the Bible talks about holiness, it mentions human sexuality. This is a holiness church. This is a holiness denomination. I preached this sermon last summer at Indian Springs camp meeting and just wondered if we ever if we ever needed it, we need it now. Let me give you a third reason. We're about to turn to Scripture. Why I have to go there tonight. Are you ready? This is my third reason. It's actually got 11 parts to it. Jaden, Liam, Samara, Noah, Macy, Tucker, Josiah, Gabe, Little Miss Dumpling, Lydia, Abigail, and Caleb, my grandchildren. This is why I'm fighting this battle. My generation's too old almost to matter anymore, but I'll take a bullet for my kids. And I want them to grow up in a world where they understand what a little boy and a little girl is, what a mommy and a daddy is. And that world is fast disappearing. And so I'm fighting. I'm fighting for them. Turn to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18. This is the second sermon I've preached from Leviticus. You may question my pastoral abilities after this. Do you know who Ian McKellen is? Ian McKellen is a British actor, and if you know the movie Lord of the Rings, he's Gandalf. Great actor, great movie, Ian McKellen. He's also a homosexual advocate very vocal. And he wrote in a magazine article some years ago, every time I go to a motel, I look in the drawer and I find the Gideon Bible and I rip out Leviticus 18. <laughs> That's a great way to introduce Leviticus 18. It's like, it makes me want to read Leviticus 18. But he said, I don't like that chapter. I think he likes, he says, the rest of the Bible, but he doesn't like what I'm about to read to you. And he thinks he can pick and choose the parts of God's Word that he believes in and what he doesn't, apparently. 
But let's go there and read God's Word. Um, let's go. It takes courage even to read this in public, all right? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. And what he's talking about is practice their sexuality. Don't do it like they do it in Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Here we go. None of you shall approach any of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. Verse 8, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Verse 9, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister. It goes on, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter, of your father's wife's daughter, of your father's sister, of your mother's sister, of your father's brother, of your daughter-in-law, laws of incest. And the phrase, how interesting it is, uncover the nakedness of. That's a euphemism for all manner of everything from rape to touching to joking to abuse. But an interesting phrase, stuff that goes on in families. Don't go there. Look at verses um, you, uh, 6 and following. Verses 6 and, oh, excuse me. I'm losing my, play, I'm losing my train of thought here as I told you I was going to. <laughs> um, skip down to verse 19, 20, verse 20. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. This is adultery. You shall not make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children or offer them to Moloch to profane the name of God. I am the Lord. Verse 22. This is the verse Ian McKellen hates. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Verse 23, you shall not lie with an animal and so make yourself unclean. Verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited them out. What a strong word. Verse 29, for everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs they were practiced before you and to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. 
chapter 19, And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation of the people of Israel, saying, You shall be, what? Holy, as I, the Lord, your God, am holy. What an amazing, what an amazing chapter. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be like the Canaanites. Think about the gods that they worshipped in Egypt and in Canaan. Baal, Ra, Asherah. Think about the gods of Greece. Let me just be candid. And I think the first time I was introduced to pornography was ninth grade literature class <laughs> when we read Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology. Do you remember that book? It was a classic, public school. But the Greek myths, the Greek gods were sexually weird. <laughs> I mean, these deities, Zeus and Aphrodite and Athena, they were doing stuff that I had never heard of in my life. So studying mythology introduced me to sexual perversity. Now let me ask you, what happens if you worship gods that are sexually perverse? I'm so glad you asked. Because we become like what we worship. If you worship a perverse god, you will be perverse. Listen to this. But if you worship the Holy One, you will be holy. You can't not be holy if you really worship the Holy One. So in other words, God is telling His people, be who you are. You don't belong to Baal. You don't belong to these pagan deities. You belong to the Holy One. Remember who you are. When I was a lost teenager in high school, heading out for the weekend, my dad would sometimes look at me and say, Son, remember who you are and who you belong to. <laughs> that could mess up your whole weekend. Because what was he saying? He wasn't just giving me rules. He was saying, you're not like the world. The world is confused about human sexuality. You are a child of God, the Holy One. Be who you are. He talks about all manner of incest, stuff that goes on in families between family members. I would love to tell you this kind of stuff never happens among church people. But you and I know better. This is a passage that needs to be read periodically in church just so we hear it. We've all heard the stories. This is a passage that reminds us of the sin of adultery. This is a passage that reminds us of the sin of homosexual behavior. This is a passage that reminds us of the sin of bestiality. And the consequences of these behaviors 
are that the land will vomit you out. What strong language. There are some things you can't not know. And when we misbehave in terms of our human sexuality, the consequences are severe. Now, I'd love to say more about that, but I think we've heard enough of that for the moment. But I want you to think, just take a deep breath. Because 26 times in this passage, God says, no, don't do it. Stop, cease, desist. Don't do it. And then I think it's as if he says, now what part of no don't you understand? You may be thinking, okay, Stan, I get it. God says no to perverse sexuality. Does he ever say yes? You'll never guess how I'm going to respond to that. I'm so glad you asked. Because so often in the church we get so caught up in prohibitions of all the things God says no to. This is why I love Tim Tennant's book on theology of the body. It's a very positive book, not about the bad sexual practices, but about the positive things that God, the Holy One, in this book has to say about human sexuality. So as we close tonight, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And I want to remind you that long before God said no to bad sex, he said yes, emphatically yes, to good sex. <laughs> I, uh, holy. holy, yes, good, thank you. Um, the reason he's so opposed to the things he's opposed to is because he is so for what he's created, that marvelous gift of human sexuality. Genesis 1, verse 27. Let me just mention three things God says yes to. Are you with me? I never in my life imagined that this verse would be controversial. But these are fighting words today. Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. If you'd have said to me 10 years ago, those are fighting words, I would have said, you got to be kidding. According to Scripture, this is not my opinion, this is the Word of God, human persons come in two varieties and only two. And it's an interesting two, not black and white not rich and poor, not Democrat and Republican. They come in two varieties, little boys and little girls. Two and only two. And if I understand Scripture correctly, 
our biology determines our gender. Now, whether you know it or not, the statement I just made is inflammatory. Because we live in a world, and if you're not aware of this, please be aware of what your children are learning in sex education class. Our biology determines our sex, but our psychology determines our gender. When I began to read this, I just, it was like, this is a brave new world. Gender, the idea, can be a choice. It can be fluid. It can move from one to the other. When Bruce Jenner became Caitlin, I think we all scratched our head and said, what kind of world are our children growing up in? Where your gender can be chosen. You know, nobody consulted me whether I was going to be born or not. <laughs> Stan, would you like to be born? Nobody consulted me about what family I was born in, who my mom and dad were. Nobody consulted me about what color my skin was, what nation I was born in. And nobody consulted me whether I was going to be a boy or a girl. These were givens. They weren't choices. They were given. And I just want to say, I think if you got a problem with that, your problem with was, was with the Creator. It's not with me. <laughs> Genesis 1 tells us that God is for gender, boys and girls. Now, to make it personal, we have three girls in our family. And when our girls were little, oh my goodness, our house was full with baby dolls and tea sets and ribbons and dresses that spin. If the dress didn't spin, she didn't want to wear it. And I was just captured by little girls. Then my littlest girl had two sons. Oh my goodness, when we would go to see Joshua and Gabe, uh, Josiah and Gabe, Josiah, their house is full of trucks and trucks, <laughs> building blocks, and every stick and every banana is a gun, a weapon. And at two years of age, Josiah had a vocabulary to distinguish between a mail truck, a backhoe, a semi-truck, <laughs> a tractor, a mail truck, a garbage truck, an incredible vocabulary. My girls, when they saw anything rolling, car, 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 you will never convince me that what God has created in masculinity and femininity is not something he has put into the depths of our being. I know this is a simplistic answer to a very deep question. But Genesis tells us that humans come in two varieties, males and females, and that's the Creator's design. And I just want to go on record saying, vive la différence. Long live the difference of males and females. God is for gender. 
Marriage is a union of difference. I'm going to say that again. Marriage, you're not marrying your clone. You know, when I go play tennis with my male tennis buddies, we never argue. <laughs> we never fight. We never disagree. With your fishing buddies, you can sit in a boat for hours and never have an argument because you're with your same kind. But you get married and the sparks start flying. Now, maybe that's not true in your marriage, but I just want to testify it's hard being married to a woman because she does not think like I think. God says, that's the point. And that's where fertility comes. Same-sex marriage is by definition barren. This sounds harsh in this day. This is hate speech, many would think. But it's what God's word is proclaiming the beauty of gender differences. And when they come together in union, the fertility of what God has designed. Secondly, God is for gender. Secondly, God is for sexual expression. God is for the sexual union. Look at Genesis 1, 28, the first command in human history. And God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, God is commanding them to be physically intimate. That's the first command. I still remember a Promise Keepers event when that was preached and the men in the auditorium said, go God, go God. This is where human history began. You see, God is the one who thought up sexuality. God is the one who thought up every curve in a woman's body. I love to say that from the pulpit. And I want to say, God, you are amazing. Makes me want to worship you. The beauty that you have created. God is for sexual expression when it's between one man and one woman in the covenant of a lifelong commitment called marriage. It's clean, it's good, it's right, it's holy. We need to be saying that in church. You see, a sexual expression is like it only works when you follow the instructions. Like a train. When does a train have freedom? Well, the engineers designed a train, gave it lots of power, but a train has freedom only when it stays on the tracks. If a train says, oh, look at that beautiful green field. I think I'm going to leave the tracks and go frolic in the fields, what happens? It's called a train wreck. Human sexuality only works when we follow the instructions. One man, one woman in a covenant of love for life. I'd love to tell you some stories, but let's move on. When we stay in the tracks, when we leave the tracks, 
It's a train wreck. Thirdly, God is for marriage. God is for gender. God is for sexual expression. He says yes. He says yes. Thirdly, God says yes to marriage. I've just got to read a little bit. Turn to Genesis 2. We're in the Garden of Eden. And look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for Adam to be alone. Now this is very interesting. Because all through Genesis 1, God creates something and the text says it was good. 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 It was very good. But then we get to Genesis 2. This is before the serpent and the snake come. And there's one thing in a perfect, sinless universe that is not good. That is intriguing. What can be not good in the Garden of Eden? For Adam to be alone. And so what does God do? I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of all the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. In other words, God is helping Adam look for a suitable mate. And I think he brought a penguin along and said, Adam, what do you think? And I think Adam said, well, it's cute, but not a lot of chemistry there with the penguin. I don't know how it all worked, but finally God said, and let me just tell you the story. God said, Adam, take a nap. Adam went to sleep. While Adam was asleep, God did a little surgery, took a rib out, and he made the pinnacle of creation. I mean, he waited till the last hour of the last day to make the cherry on top of all creation. And he brought Eve to Adam. And I don't know exactly how to describe what Adam said, but it went something like this. Va-va-voom. <laughs> and Adam became a poet it's amazing the poetry that comes out of a man in the presence of Eve. This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. God is so for marriage. This is why when the Supreme Court had the audacity to change the definition, I for one said, this is a battlefield I will give my life on. This is an issue that must be fought. Marriage is what marriage, God defines it to be. God is for marriage. This is, I like to, when I preach on Genesis 2, I call it the garden variety of marriage. The garden of Eden variety of marriage. Let me just tell you this about marriage. Human history begins with a marriage. In the Garden of Eden, there's not a government, praise the Lord. <laughs> there's not even a church in the Garden of Eden. But I'll tell you what is there. 
there's a man and a woman. And the two become one, and then the one become three. A holy, sacred family. And the three began, just began to multiply as that union of difference and the fertility of it, the beauty of it, begins to fill the earth. Human history begins with a marriage, man, male, and female. Human history ends with a marriage. Oh my goodness, the wedding of the lamb. When the lamb, the groom, marries the church, the bride. That is the culmination of the whole human history, a marriage. And you'll never guess where Jesus did his first miracle. Not in Jerusalem, not during a worship service, not during a sermon. He did it, you know where, at a wedding and John, writing about that wedding in John chapter 2, says it was at the wedding that we realized who he was. That's when we realized this is the groom looking for his bride. This is why the marriage issue is worth fighting for. Every, when the model is broken of what marriage is, Things fall apart. Things fall apart. So God says yes to gender, male and female. God says yes to sexual expression. Within marriage, it's good, it's holy. And God says yes to marriage. We're about to have communion. This is what I want to ask you to do. What does Jesus give us in communion? What words does the pastor say in quoting Jesus? This is my body. Jesus is not just giving you his spirit. He's given you his body. As you take communion tonight, I want to invite you to do the most radical thing I think a human can do, and that is to give Jesus your body, not just your heart, not just your spirit, not just your soul, not just your mind. Give him your body. That includes your sexuality, obviously. He wants to live an embodied life in us, in our marriages, in our families. We're not to live out our sexuality like they do among the pagan nations. We are the people of God. God's people have always been recognized in human history because they practice their sexuality differently than the world. I wish I knew how to say that strongly enough. Lord, we thank you for the places where you've said no, 
where you showed us where the fence is. Thank you for the fence. But Lord, we thank you most of all for where you began human history, not with a no, but with an incredible affirmative yes to what it means to be masculine, for what it means to be feminine. Lord, you gave an incredible yes to the beauty and sanctity of human sexuality. And Lord, you designed marriage, one male and one female, living together in a covenant of love where the two become one so that the one becomes three. Lord, forgive us as a culture for how we've taken that beautiful gift and just messed it up. Would you forgive our sins and give us the grace to begin again with the beauty of the gift you've given us. Tonight, as we take your body, we want to give you our bodies. Don't you know, Paul said, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Meet us tonight in the broken bread, in the poured out wine. Fill us and change us. Transform us in Jesus' name.